Just like a newspaper issues corrections, I think it's important to admit when we say something we disagree with, even if I'm the one that I disagree with. In this episode, I compare the Sermon on the Mount to Proverbs as loosely connected, pithy sayings. I want to say that I think they are short, pithy sayings, but there is a theme to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In roughly the middle of his sermon, Jesus tells his disciples to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This impossible call to perfection is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. The pithy aphorisms all bolster that theme. So one way I think our text from this week fits into that is the false prophets deceive people, leading them away from perfection and therefore are to be condemned and thrown into the fire. The perfection is impossible, but it shouldn't be invisible in our interpretation. So I just wanted to add that and say that Jonathan and I will do these quick corrections if we think that they're needed as we go along. And with that, let's go on to the episode. Hi, I'm Seth Roseman. I'm Jonathan Fuller. And welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine. Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it. Because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Jonathan, how are you this pre-evening? Pre-evening? It is a wonderful pre-evening. Always good to be with you, my friend. I am kind of disappointed in the amount of dinner that I spilled on my shirt prior to us recording. But hey, you know, we all have to do laundry, right? We've all got to get ourselves cleaned up every once in a while. That's the nice part about podcasts. Otherwise, people would have no idea. Yeah, I guess I didn't really have to disclose how much of a slob I look like right now. But between that and my quarantine hair, it's just... It's just not, it's not working for me tonight. But hey, we're here. I am so glad to be with you and excited to talk about Matthew tonight. Me too. But first I have a question. Oh, right. Of course. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to only eat your favorite fruit and not be able to eat any other fruits? Or never eat your favorite fruit again? but you can eat any other fruit. Okay, so the first question I have to answer is what's my favorite fruit, which is a hard question to answer. It's probably some kind of berry. Maybe watermelon. I really like watermelon. And I could put down some watermelon. I eat watermelon so fast. It's not good for it's me. Then eating watermelon is just drinking so- like a like, solid. Like sugar water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm going to go, but I'm going to go with, I really like good strawberries. 
I like a lot of fruits, though, and because of that, I think I'm willing to give up strawberries to be able to maintain the variety. I think that's actually a pretty easy one for me. I should have made this question harder somehow, because I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, what's your favorite fruit? I think my favorite fruit... I also really like strawberries or bananas. I was thinking about bananas, too. Bananas, I think it would be harder to give up. They're not necessarily my favorite... I love how portable they are. They are very portable. They come in their own self-contained, like, wrapper exactly. that's also biodegradable. It's not wrapped in plastic. Unless, you know, some places do also wrap their bananas in plastic, which is just ridiculous. But, actually, I think I might be making that up. I've never like, seen a banana wrapped in plastic. I was just that up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I... Never mind. I'm off to a rough start for this one. So, <laughs> so don't wrap your bananas in plastic, but be able to maintain the variety of fruit in your life. That's what I'm getting from this. I think I think I need your help to get out of this situation. Is there anything else I can do or talk about right now? I can read the scripture. Maybe do you want we me should to do just that? move to the scripture. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> okay. This is Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. Hmm. I'm anticipating some good conversation here. Seth, why'd you go with the NRSV for this reading? At least for this particular passage, all of the translations that I looked at were so close. They were almost identical. There might be some some little individual words that are different. Sure. Maybe the way that they render the fruit is different. One instead of figs, one is something else. So I just, I thought the NRSV is one that's fairly widespread. We'll just stick with that for today. Is there anything you noticed while you were reading that kind of jumped out at you? So I was in a conversation with a, a friend recently who also went to like a, a smaller liberal arts college. And I think one of the things that we learn in that kind of educational setting is that clear-cut distinctions like either-or options, dichotomies, are often fake. There's not usually a option A, option B, you have to be one or the other. And this seems to kind of play into that idea of like a very strict dichotomy of... You know, if a tree is bad, there's no way it can produce anything good. And if a tree is good, there's no way it can produce anything bad. And that just jumps out to me as kind of, like, I want to explore it more maybe, but like, initially that doesn't settle well with me because I can think of examples where both things that I, that this passage says can't happen, do happen. But that's really just an initial impression what almost disappoints me about this passage is I always feel like you know that the tree's bad only after it bears the fruit. Like, I want Jesus to tell me how to identify the bad tree and the bad fruit before. 
Right. Right. I'm like, okay, like now I'm halfway into my banana. It's terrible. Exactly. Like I want to know what should I look for. for yeah, and especially if this is related to false prophets, so there's some measure of of teaching, maybe of ministry or connection with other people here, not knowing who's dangerous, whose fruit is bad until they're bearing the fruit. That could leave a lot of people really harmed or really traumatized by experiences that they have and. Why can't we, I'm with you, why can't we know some other warning signs? Like, is there a disease on the bark that we can look for? Or or something with the leaves that helps us identify it? Uh, and, I, and, that's, and that's part of it, too, is like, tree, like fruit-bearing trees don't bear fruit just kind of by accident. They usually need to be, like, tended to and taken care of. And still, to do all that work, and to find out at the end of it all that, that, oh, this this tree's crap. It doesn't produce anything. That's a really frustrating experience. Or it would be. I don't know. I don't tend fruit trees. Uh, But it also, like, it adds a layer of frustration to the metaphor, or the parable, so to speak, that, that Jesus is putting forward here about false prophets. I feel like we've talked about all the things that we don't like about this passage. Is there anything that we do like about it that we think is helpful? <laughs> Maybe you can hear Marshall barking. In I can't hear. I can't hear Marshall. That's okay. He can be part of this conversation. Maybe he doesn't like it either. Uh, <laughs> no, like I guess it's a, another side of the same of the same coin, or maybe this is another side of a twenty-sided die or something like that. But even if it's late. You have some way of evaluating right. whether it's good. Well, and and that's, that's, that's what I'm kind of going for. It's like, maybe it is helpful to think about, like, oh, just because, just because we have these kinds of feelings, like, there are ways to tell when a false prophet is a false prophet for Jesus. Like, there are ways to tell that just because you have good feelings about a person, whether it's from personal experience or from some sort of implicit bias that makes you look at them more favorably, that's not what tells you the value and worth of their work. But even on that, I'm still a little frustrated (laughs) because it's like this passage doesn't affirm beliefs that I hold to be really important about like the value of every person. It's like if you're not bearing good fruit, you're thrown into the fire. (laughs) And I don't know, maybe it just takes it more seriously or thinks about it differently in a way that or that I'm that I'm thinking about things in general but there's just a lot of tension for me in this one a lot of a lot of things that are coming up that I'm like oh that doesn't doesn't sit well with me our first episode was about the sermon on the mount the very beginning when we talked about the beatitudes now we're almost at the end so i always think with the beatitudes there's they're so pithy there's such little quips that it does make it hard to see the nuances in it, right? The Beatitudes, just be- I think because they're short, it's cut and dry. And I think this has that same feeling. Like you're in and you're producing good fruit or you're, you're producing mm. bad fruit and then you're out. Yeah, that's true. That style of the Sermon on the Mount even in the stuff in between, it's like 
oh, Jesus is talking about everything that his disciples need to know in the onset about prayer, and it's only for us, like, a dozen verses. Seems like there's more he could say about that, but he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's a good a good reminder of the, the point in time where this is where this is coming up. It's kind of hitting the disciples with a bunch of one-liners. A bunch of zingers. <laughs> is there anything else about the story of this text that you thought was really important for our understanding of it? One thing I found when I was researching was that the Pharisees who were contemporaneous with Jesus... The people who are at, who are around at the same time of him, as Jesus, kind of think about prophets as being in the past. For them, there aren't many people who they see as prophets hmm. at the time. So one of the commentaries I read wondered, and we've talked about this a little bit on our podcast about how it can work at scripture can work at two levels. Jesus can can be talking to the crowds on the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew can also be talking to his audience at the same time Hmm. and this comment this commentator wondered if it's not an admonition also to matthew's audience as this jesus movement is starting to grow that maybe there's some false prophets Mm -hmm. and as people are as people are kind of hearing about jesus and they don't know a lot it's it's more difficult to identify who's who's the the sheep and who's the wolf a wolf in sheep's clothing if that makes sense i feel like that was a long way to say this might be more directed toward matthew's audience hmm. as a warning almost there aren't many texts that are easy in the bible but i think this is a particularly hard one it's always hard when you don't have a lot of context and I think the nature of the Sermon on the Mount is that you don't have a lot of context. You do have a little bit to yeah. work with. But when you have all these sayings, it's almost like reading Proverbs. They don't really seem to go together. Sometimes you can find a strand that seems to connect a few of them, and then it takes a turn to go to something else. So I think just the nature of, of this chunk makes it even harder than Scripture already can be sometimes. Yeah, and it's like, because it's in that self-contained idea, or at least in, it's at least framed that way in our translations that add headings throughout the Sermon on the Mount and really break it up into those pieces, but the text itself isn't necessarily connected. I do think, though, that the next few verses that come right after this are important, too, because it's, it's these verses that are, you know, saying... Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then many will say to Jesus that they did many amazing things in Jesus' name, and he will say, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. And so this feels, I, I think that coupled with what you were already saying about Matthew's audience it does feel like a directive to a faith community. It feels like a struggle that's going on internally. It's not a, mat- a matter of like the church versus the world. It's these forces and these people that are attempting to tear the church apart, whether or not they're intending to. They're, they're, they're trying their best to. There's work being done that is destructive to the community of faith that is originating within that community. 
Okay, that's that's really helpful. I appreciate you bringing up that that measure of like the or that context and that focus for Matthew's audience specifically. I've been thinking about our passage, which the NRSV headlines as a tree and its fruit, and the next one is right. concerning self-deception. I've been thinking about mm-hmm. our our chunk for today about ways in which people deceive others. And then the next part as ways in which people deceive themselves. I've been thinking about it as one way that's in general, and then again in another way that's more individualistic. I think that distinction is really helpful. Do you have anything else about the story of this text, or do you think we're ready to move on to what's the point? I think we're ready to move on to what's the point. So what's the point, (laughs) Seth? (laughs) We talked a little bit about how this is seems to be directed at a specific faith community. That's really helpful to me. I feel like I often think about this as a challenge from the outside. Like, of course, there's people on the outside that are trying to deceive me in some way. Maybe, at least for me, just like politically, philosophically. But that may, there's even within the faith community there's people who are deceiving and i'm not even sure that it's always intentional but i still this is my this is my my shtick the bad part for me is you just have to wait and see whether the fruit is good at the end yeah decide whether you should have been following them from the get-go well let's draw out the the agricultural metaphor a little bit more so Trees have seasons when they produce fruit, right? Like, there is there is a measure of labor that goes into it before it produces fruit. That's for sure. But once a tree is producing fruit, it produces fruit, like, on a more regular cycle. It almost feels like, rather than, like, sticking it out till the end and then figuring out whether or not you're on the right team... It, maybe it's more so an encouragement of like, like constant awareness and constant checking. Like, am, you know, are, is the work that we're doing actually good fruit? Is it work that's uplifting people? Is it work that is uh, honoring the way and the teaching of Jesus? Is it producing and instilling life and, and restored life in the world? Those are questions I think we all need to be asking all the time. If I'm, if I'm continuing to dive down the rabbit hole of the metaphor, like, you know, some trees have good seasons and bad seasons, too. But it is true that, like, the wholeness of the tree will determine the fruit. So, like, the fruit itself is not, if it's diseased, if it's bad in some way, it's, it, there's bound to be another issue within the tree itself. Because it's not producing something that's correct, that's that it's supposed to. There's almost a measure of like constant awareness, but also constant checking into if something is wrong, what's what's the issue? It's not just that we harmed people. It's not just that we caused destruction or instilled a violent attitude or mindset. What is the underlying belief or idea? that is fueling that behavior and how can we work towards and address that 
I think this the distinction you're making between people and their attitudes, ideas, and behaviors is helpful. Their behaviors and their attitudes can bear bad fruit, but that's in some ways separate from who they are. When you're thinking about people in general, I don't want to just cast them off as bad fruit or good fruit, right? Yeah, and and there it is true that like when we acknowledge sickness or disease, if we want to put it that way, if we are the trees, we not when we when we identify these areas that are producing bad fruit for us, we do need to work to remove that. We need to work to throw that into the fire and create that opportunity for new growth that may be healthy. You know, that's that's why so many trees and shrubs and fruit trees even are like trimmed back so much when they've grown is to ensure that the growth that continues is growth that is healthy. Trees are often viewed as really static things. And maybe this passage plays into it in the like false dichotomy it presents, but there's there's also this idea that trees have just kind of always been there and you know unless we cut them down to build a new shopping plaza or something they're going to stay there but trees are still living and growing they're going through cycles every year too and i think that needs to be a reminder for us is like we can be growing in a certain direction for a while and not realize that the fruit that we're producing is terrible then when we have that moment of correction it doesn't mean the end it might mean the end of that part of us or at least the beginning of the end of that part of us, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of us. I just want to point out a shift that you made that I thought was really profound is when, when we started this conversation, we were talking about identifying false prophets out there, but now we, we made a shift to talk about identifying what's bad fruit about us, about ourselves. Ugh. Man, that is one of the things that is always one of the pieces of uh, N.T. Wright's literature and writing about, uh, I think it's from his book, Evil and the Justice of God. He talks about, we always try to draw the line between good and evil in the sand between us and them, whoever that may be, always trying to draw it in a way that puts us on the side that is right, when in reality, the line that runs between good and evil runs down the middle of every single one of us. And that there's good and bad fruit, using the metaphor from this scripture, that can come from all of us. And it's not, it's not a process of, I can see this passage playing particularly well, no matter your ideology, into the purity tests that are really common for how we interact with one another today. Is this person conservative enough? Are they liberal enough? Do they believe the right things about the Bible? These checklists... I could see this being used in a really harmful way to perpetuate certain aspects of our culture that are really damaging. But if we begin to frame this about, not about like us and them outside beyond our communities, but about not just ourselves, but our communities as well, and where are we bearing bad fruit? How can we, how can we alleviate that? I think we might also be tempted to say, how are we in our community bearing bad fruit and point to the one person <laughs> in our community? Like, get them out of here. Get out of here, Frank. 
it's got to be Frank, right? Is that the person that's gonna that's gonna bear the bad fruit? Their name is Frank. Yeah, I'm gonna use that from now on. Okay, if you got a Frank, you can't produce good fruit. <laughs> no, this passage. I feel like even our conversation about this passage has taken on so many focuses and shifts and turns because honestly, right now I'm like looking at this scripture and I'm like, I love this, and just like a few minutes ago. We couldn't say anything but horrible negative things about it. <laughs> and I have I have certainly gone the other way when I've talked about Bible passages too, but I don't I don't know that I've ever had a conversation where I can so quickly identify a change in feeling just because we're we're diving a little deeper, you're providing some of that needed context. That's so funny to me that <laughs> that we're just such a change in just a change in tone, you know. To your point about the line of evil that runs through all of us, I guess whenever I read scripture, I always find at the same time that it sort of reads me, kind of it exegetes me too, makes me yes. ask the questions: What's my what's my good fruit, and what's my what's my bad fruit? When I ask questions of it, it always turns around and seems to ask the same question of me. And that, that Seth, I, I appreciate and have that same experience. And I've been thinking about that recently as a way that we can dismantle kind of oppressive and a, almost, honestly like a tool of white supremacy in the way that we approach our scripture. Because it is, it is the assumption of the supremacists that there is nothing about them that needs to change. Mm. And so every question that they ask is a tool to understand, not to learn or to grow. It's, it's, and it's a means of acquiring power. And so we accumulate knowledge and we accumulate power. But when we have that more reflexive, that more mutual relationship with scripture, when we have that kind of relationship with our communities and the people around us, that begins to, to dismantle the assumptions that we hold about ourselves. It begins to dismantle the systems that are around us that hold certain people in higher esteem than others in undeserving and inappropriate and harmful ways. And we need to continue to ask those kinds of questions about where, where our fruit is coming from and where it's going. I love this idea that we've talked about in which we see the, the good fruit and the bad fruit that we're bearing. I wonder if that's what we should pray for. Can I pray for that? Yeah, that'd be great. Lord, in Jesus Christ, you show us what good fruit looks like. Help us bear good fruit, pruning our limbs and our ideologies to better reflect your green, growing, good kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Jonathan, what story are we telling next week? Next week, we are going back to the Psalms to look at the first part of Psalm 105. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it.